Second Peter chapter 3, and this morning we're actually going to finish our study through the book of Second Peter. We left off in chapter 3, verse 15, actually right kind of in the middle of the verse of 15, so we're going to pick back up there and run our way through the remainder of the chapter in this book as we close our study out this morning. Second Peter 3, verse 15, and would you stand with me out of respect for the Word of God? As I read our portion of scripture, Peter, having said, consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. We pick up this morning where he says, as also our beloved brother, Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. And Father, we humbly ask, as always, for just the help of your Spirit, and that the ministry of your Spirit would be the teacher and instructor in our midst this morning, and that he would speak to us what it is that we personally need to hear, that we would be able to have, as you say, an ear to hear what your Spirit would say to this part of your church as we've assembled, and as we study this portion of Scripture this morning, we pray every intention and everything that was in your heart when you gave it to us would be what we hear and receive for ourselves this morning. We ask, Lord, speak to our hearts, bless your word, and minister to us those things that we need to hear. And we ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, we have a term that we talk about in the health field called preventative medicine. And preventative medicine is basically steps or measures that are taken in order to maintain health in an effort to sort of prevent illness. Uh, to forestall or prevent disease or disability or even death. And here in our passage, I think the instruction that is given to us uh, really is offering, if you would, some preventative medicine towards spiritual health. Uh, we'll find in these verses that we look at them together this morning, really sort of some un unhealthy things that we should beware of, some unhealthy things that would be good for us to avoid, as well as at the same time, we see some healthy things in which we ought to do. Now, uh, kind of picking up where we left off last week, in the prior verses, really in the whole of what we've been looking at there in chapter 3, Peter has been talking to us about this thing called the day of the Lord. And we talked about how the day of the Lord is really this time period that includes things like the return of Jesus. It's a time period that includes a day of judgment that God is going to bring upon ungodly people. It's a time period that includes the discarding of this present heavens and earth 
by fervent heat, the Bible tells us. It's a time that will also include the establishing of a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. And as Peter was talking about this day of the Lord in the prior verses, he also was exhorting us to be looking for and to be living in light of the reality of that day of the Lord that is soon going to certainly come to pass. And remember, he emphasized two times specifically that the reason that the Lord is delaying and waiting, if you would, to bring to pass the day of the Lord on this planet really is because of his tremendous loving patience towards humanity. And the very fact that he is wanting to give more time, we saw, for people to repent. And the idea of repent means to turn away from a wrong direction and to turn the opposite way so that you might walk in the right direction. The word literally means a change of mind that then produces a change of behavior and action. It's not just feeling sorry because there are people all throughout, let's say, for example, prisons in the United States of America that are sorry for wrong things that they've done. But being sorry doesn't necessarily indicate repentance. Uh, sorrow can be a part of repentance, uh, but to be repentant means you acknowledge this is wrong or the way I've been going or thinking is wrong. And so therefore I need to turn around and go the opposite way, 180 degrees and do what is right instead. And the Bible tells us that God has been delaying patiently, though people spit in the face of God and raise their fists towards him and, and sin against him and rebel against him despite his love and his grace and keeping their hearts beating and breath in their lungs, that God in his mercy, despite the moral decline and disintegration on this planet, that God in his mercy is long-suffering and he's waiting patiently to bring to pass the day of the Lord because he wants people to have time to repent, to turn away from sin rather than being judged in their sin or rather than perishing in hell because of their sin. The scriptures tell us that God's desire is that all would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Now that being said, listen, God understands he created us. People have free choice. And because people do have free choice, some will choose to repent. Others will choose to reject and to die in that condition. But God in his tremendous love, like a parent who never enjoys punishing or disciplining their children, the Lord delays. He's holding out as long as possible, hoping that a few more will repent that a few more souls will turn to Jesus Christ and receive his forgiveness and be spared hell and experience heaven and eternal life. In fact, the last thing, remember, we just read together in verse 15 where we left off last week. We left with that phrase in verse 15, considering that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. Again, Peter was re-emphasizing, consider this. He says, consider the reason it seems that this may be delayed is that it's the long-suffering of the Lord wanting to see more people experience salvation in Jesus Christ. Peter then continues as we move on this morning, verse 15, saying, As also, he says, our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things. Now, notice that Peter indicates here how the things that he has been saying in his letters that we've been studying together, 
He says, the things that I've been speaking to you about and teaching you, he said, really, they're not new things. Instead, he says, if you were to evaluate, you would see, even in that day, among the culture he was writing, everything that I've been saying, Peter says, it simply agrees with everything that the Apostle Paul, our beloved brother, has been writing in his epistles or his letters. The word epistles means his letters like Colossians and Galatians and Romans. And what Peter is trying to indicate is he's saying, look, Paul has written to you also in all his letters, speaking in them, he says here in our text, of these things. What things? The day of the Lord, the return of Jesus, the fact that there's a day of judgment coming upon the ungodly, the fact that uh, you know that Jesus is coming and the reason that that is delayed is because God in his loving mercy is wanting to forestall and give as much opportunity for people to be saved. And, and therefore, we should be looking to these things and understanding that God is delaying because he wants to see people saved. For example, when you read a portion of Paul's letters to illustrate this, Romans chapter 2, verses 4 to 8 He see Paul here speaking of the same things that we've been studying here in Peter's letters. Romans 2, 4, 8 says, Paul declares, Do you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, but in accordance with the hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each according to his deeds, eternal life to those who with patient continuance and doing good seek glory and honor and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath. So we see here, even in that one section of scripture, almost a few of the things topically that Peter has been talking about recently in our verses. And we see here in these verses in second Peter chapter three, verses 15 and 16, it's indicating to us the existence, listen, of internal consistency, internal consistency in what is taught and spoken about in the scriptures. Peter is saying to us, listen, I'm not sharing new or novel concepts that no one else is. He's saying, I'm just saying to you the same things that our brother Paul has been writing about these same things in his letters, which show us an important truth that there is in the word of God, in the writers and what is written in scriptural books, internal consistency. There's a consistency in the truths of the topics of the messages and the things that are being shared. There is not contradiction. There's not contradiction in the word of God. There is a continuous thread of consistency. It speaks of the same things. Different writers at different periods throughout history, Old and New Testament, you find consistency internally in the word of God. And the reason for that is not because you had a bunch of brilliant men who through centuries of history kept playing whisper down the lane and let's try and keep our story straight here. No, the reason is because there is a divine order origin and there is really one author to everything that is written in the 66 books that make up the library of this thing that we call the bible and that is there is one author called the spirit of god who as peter said moved men by his spirit 
to speak and to write the very things that were the will and the word of God. So the reason there is one author inspiring, as a result, you have consistency in the truths and the teachings saying the same things, reinforcing themselves. And I bring this to your attention this morning because, listen, you are holding in your hand, if you are this morning, whether it is in paper version or whether you have a Bible app on your phone, whatever it may be, if you have a copy of the Word of God, you have the most reliable, credible thing on this planet. And we live in a world full of error and it's not going to get any better. And there, if there's anything reliable and credible that you can bank on, that you can be confident is true and reliable and build your life on and base your future on, it is the Word of God. And the fact of its internal consistency just further validates that reality. Now, regarding the things written by Paul in his epistles and letters, Peter says to us here, look with me back in our text in verse 16, regarding the Apostle Paul's writings, Peter goes on to say regarding his letters in which, verse 16, are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people, he says, twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scripture. So Peter indicates, first of all here, that some things in scripture are indeed hard to understand. He secondly indicates in these verses here that there are unlearned and unstable people who exist out there who will twist the scripture in its meaning to cause further confusion to people in misinterpretation. The first thing let's note together is that Peter indicates here by the Holy Spirit directing his words, Peter says here in our verses that it is true that there are some things he says that in verse 16 are hard to understand. Now, he's equating Paul the Apostle's writings to Scripture. It's very clear in the text. And I don't know about you, but Peter here, the Apostle Peter, a man who was used by God to record Scripture just like the Apostle Paul, someone who walked with Jesus, was an apostle, actually says here, openly admitting that there are some things that Paul wrote through the wisdom God gave to him by the Spirit. Peter says openly they're kind of hard to understand. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that. That's very liberating to me. To think that an apostle, one used to write scripture himself, who was hearing from God and from the Spirit, one who walked with Jesus in the flesh, one of the twelve, actually acknowledges that in Paul's letters, which are a representation of what? The Word of God. He actually acknowledges, you know what? Sometimes there are some challenging portions in the scripture that are kind of difficult to get a grasp on or to fully understand and i look at that and boy that eliminates such pressure off of me as a bible reader to realize that yes god gives us understanding by his spirit in his word but it helps me to realize i am absolutely normal and so are you to be able to humbly admit that there are times when I can come to a passage of Scripture, certain ones, and still sort of scratch my head a little bit and go, I don't know if I'm fully grasping this here. I don't know if I'm fully... This is, this, this is challenging. And that's an okay thing. To say such things, please understand, when he says such things are hard to understand, don't misinterpret, that was not a criticism. Peter's not criticizing Paul's writing. 
In fact, in ancient culture, historically, among those who wrote philosophers and stuff, it was actually considered a compliment to say someone's writings were difficult to understand. It was a form of compliment in that culture to speak of how that person who wrote, wrote with incredible depth. And that there was a real depth of wisdom to what they were saying. Paul's writings, think about it, came from the deep wells of the wisdom of God's spirit. An all-wise, omnipotent God and some deep truths, therefore, are contained within Paul's writings because they came from an infinite, awesome, amazing God. And because of that, there was great depth. So there's no surprise that when we read the scriptures sometimes, that there may be a gap in our understanding about God or a, a gap in our understanding fully of his ways in regards to certain things. In fact, Paul himself says this in Romans 11:33. Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Even Paul alluded to the amazingness of how some of God's ways he says, sometimes the ways God works, is, no matter how hard I search, I just still can't fully grasp it. There's a mystery to it. But listen, that's not a bad thing. There's something about the mysteriousness of the amazing ways of God that keeps us seeking after God, that makes us so attractive to keep searching Him. And you can't exhaust the depths of the ways and the wisdom and the person of God. It's a constant life pursuit of wanting to know him better and discover him more and understand his word. And it's okay to even humbly admit that some passages of scripture are kind of difficult to grasp, that, that we're not fully certain sometimes when we come to them. That's a good, humble thing. That's okay. You know, it's often been said before, when God becomes small enough to figure out, then he doesn't seem big enough to worship. There's something about the mystery of an awesome, incredible, amazing God that makes me wonder, that makes me wonder after him and keeps me searching and seeking him. So here he says, I can humbly admit, we can humbly admit, sometimes there are passages of scripture hard to understand. Now the danger, notice as we go on, is how some people handle the scripture that can then lead to greater error. You notice what our text is talking about. Peter identifies here in verse 16 the fact that there will always be the presence of those who handle the word of God inaccurately. There will be people who misinterpret the word of God. There will be people who uh, distort the understanding and the meaning of what scripture actually teaches, sometimes regarding passages that are difficult to understand. And he says other times there are those who not only just do this with difficult passages, but he says they do with all the rest of the scriptures too. In other words, it's just sort of a, 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 an intentional thing whereby they're twisting and misinterpreting the scriptures and considering chapter two, which was all about false teachers, he's probably alluding to here those who intentionally as a pattern or habit as false teachers twist and distort the scriptures. Notice he describes those who do this in verse 16 as those who are untaught and unstable. Untaught and unstable people are those who do this. The idea there of untaught means to be unlearned or uninstructed. It speaks of those who don't have a good working knowledge of the scriptures as a whole. It refers to individuals who lack a solid understanding with the familiarity of what the scripture teaches. 
those who are in a sense not well versed in the truths and teachings as a whole they're not doctrinally sound they're untaught they're unlearned students of the word of god he also says those who do this another characterizing mark are typically those who are unstable that's a reference to being spiritually unstable that is individuals who are characterized by not being established and rooted in the matters of spiritual life they're not really grounded in spiritual things in fact they tend to be more those who fluctuate up and down and they seem to have a spiritual life whereby they're sort of up and down in a so-called relationship with the lord they're not fully submitted they're living a very unstable Christian experience or they give the intention or the, excuse me, the image of having a, a spiritual life. But yet when you look at their spiritual life, you think, man, that doesn't seem very solid. It doesn't seem like it's really grounded or rooted. Instead, it kind of seems like you're up here, then you're down here, then you're over here. And, and one week you're you know, drunk with the spirit and the next week you're drunk with a beer in your hand. And, and, and he says there, there are those who are not only unlearned and unfamiliar with the scripture, but those who are just sort of unstable. They're wobbly. There's a lot of variation in their so-called spiritual life. And he says those who are untaught and unstable people have a propensity, he says. Look at the text. They have a propensity then, Paul says, or Peter says, to twist the meanings of scripture. You know, that's an interesting word when you look at that word twist in the original. It's a term that referred to a torture rack in the ancient culture. You remember the you see old movies or whatever maybe and you see somebody they lay them on the rack and they start to crank the you know cranking the wheel around and they're stretching the person's body apart or or and the word literally refers to stretching or twisting on a torture rack. To twist or to to stretch and people can do that with scripture, can they not? twist and stretch the scripture they stretch the scriptures supposed interpretation to fit what they want it to say they twist the meaning of what really is there uh, to sort of get the text to confess to what they want it to mean you know one of my favorite bible teachers made a statement a long time ago it's already uh, always stood with me he said if you torture any text long enough you can get it to say whatever you want and that's such, such great truth. If you torture any text long enough, you can get it to eventually say what you want. And unfortunately, this happens. We need to be aware and careful to realize that there are some who do this, who misinterpret the Bible in what it really states. They, they twist the meaning of Scripture and distort its meaning and they read into it things that aren't really there or they use it to justify something that it's not really stating. They stretch it to support an idea or teaching that they want to promote that somehow benefits them. And we need to be careful, every one of us really, that we do not come to Scripture with preconceived ideas personally. We can all be guilty of this. As a result, we, we then read into Scriptures things that it doesn't say. Or we stretch a passage or a verse to somehow get it to support what we want to hear, to validate our thought or our feeling or even our preconceived theological bent because of what we choose to believe or want to believe rather than what does scripture actually teach and when we twist the meaning of scripture which can happen purposely as well as i think ignorantly the bible just tells us here that is always destructive he says they twist the scripture to their own destruction 
Whenever we twist the meaning of scripture or stretch it out of context, that can lead a person to then believe wrong theology. And Jesus says there will be many who take the broad way of what? Destruction. As well as the fact that if a person becomes guilty of teaching destructive heresy as a false teacher, they, Second Peter 2 said, will experience God's destruction as God punishes them for misleading people. When we study the Bible, we have to take a proper approach to interpretation. And that proper approach is exegesis and not eisegesis. And those words are just large terms, complicated terms to describe two different ways to approach studying the scripture. Eisegesis, which is the dangerous and the wrong way, is when we interpret a text by introducing into it or reading into it ideas or thoughts that we have before we come to the passage. Where we go into looking at a portion of scripture with our idea or thoughts and then we read into it or interject our ideas into what the meaning of the text should be or what we'd like it to be. Exegesis, which is the proper approach to scripture, is interpretation by drawing out of the passage what God has clearly put into it. It's unpacking what's already there in the word of God to get our understanding. It's taking what God has already put in his word and by way of interpretation and application exposition, we are taking the text by careful observation and we are saying what's in the text. We're drawing out of the text what's there and accepting it for what it says and allowing that to be our doctrine and then our application. And that is why that interpretation must always precede application. An overemphasis on application, application, application. Look, I like application too. I want the Bible to speak to me today. But if you're all about application and you neglect interpretation, you're going to be really twisting the scripture quite often. We first interpret, we unpack what it says, and then from that, the Spirit of God gives us proper application for our lives. Well, Peter, having identified people who can twist and distort the scripture's meaning, he then says in verse 17, you therefore, beloved, in light of that, since you know this beforehand. Interesting terminology again there. He speaks to those he loves. Since you know this beforehand, it's the term uh, 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 prognosco, which is where we get our English word prognosis. Since you know this beforehand, it's where we get our English word prognosis. And what's a prognosis? That's a medical prediction of the anticipation of what's about to happen in the future of someone's health. And, and he's saying here, look, understanding the prognosis that the world is sick and diseased with sin that there's a day of the lord that's about to come to pass understanding that there are going to be scoffers and false teachers and that our world is infectious with error knowing those things beforehand we have to be careful that we don't have too much contact and become contaminated in a way. He says, since you know all this ahead of time that false teachers exist, that people will secretly introduce heresies that are destructive even among the church, that there will be scoffers that will come in the last days, there will be people who twist the scriptures, meaning Peter says, therefore, verse 17, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness being led away with the error of the wicked. Peter's sounding the warning alarm 
to fellow Christians whom he loves greatly that they would not be misguided spiritually. He says, beware. It's a military term. It literally means be on guard. Stand on guard. When it comes to spiritual truth, be on guard. Be alert. Pay attention, he's saying, so that you are not harmed by the potential threat of error and its attack that is launched against us to cause spiritual deception in our lives. Beware, he says, of being led away, the text says, with the error of the wicked. False teachers who promote error, who teach error, they do have an agenda. If you didn't know, guess what it is? To recruit followers. So we have to be on guard. We have to be aware and realize that if we're not careful and we listen to or embrace erroneous ideas, we will enter into error theologically. And that error can come in many ways, whether it's just an unhealthy emphasis on a certain area, maybe wealth and health and prosperity, gospel type stuff, or maybe whether it's compromise of biblical standards and being liberal and trying to water down what the Word of God really does say to make permittance and allowance for sin in today's culture or whether it's someone presenting a distortion of what is the biblical gospel of salvation, that we are sinners deserving hell and damnation, but Jesus Christ came, lived sinlessly, died brutally and sacrificially, and shed his blood as the only payment for our sins, and rose again victoriously so that he alone, by his life, can save and forgive and give the gift of God, which is eternal life. And people can distort the gospel message itself by presenting other things that are more appealing. Or, uh, again, even misguiding people into legalism or works. This is a potential thing, an error that can happen in many ways. The Bible's warning we have to be on guard against false doctrine and spiritual error. That if we're naive and gullible, we can be led away from the truth. Ephesians 4 says this, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro carried about with every wind of doctrine. We have to be careful. The destructive part of being led away, our verse goes on to tell us in verse 17 here, the danger and destructive of that is Peter says, you can fall from your own steadfastness. Fall from your own steadfastness. Now that speaks of an unwavering steadfastness, an unwavering dedication to a specific direction. And he says, you can fall from that. Now, I do not believe here in context that Peter is talking about losing one's salvation. But what I think Peter is referring to is something that he himself once experienced. Where in the book of Galatians, remember Paul the Apostle actually rebuked Peter to his face over the issue of legalism. And Peter had fallen from his steadfast position and understanding in the truth of what the gospel of grace and salvation was all about and when paul saw his belief and his behavior affecting him paul rebuked him to his face because he says peter you're wrong and and you and you're giving a wrong example to these other believers around you here and this was the case with the church in galatia if you read the the book of galatians it basically is a letter by paul written to a group of believers who fell from their steadfast direction in the truth of what the gospel was and then kind of entered into sort of a self-righteous legalism bent where they were trying to become righteous by observing the law again instead of just trusting in the grace of God through Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says to that church. He says to them in Galatians 5.4, You've become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. 
Again, they had lost their salvation, but Paul says, what do you do? You're you're abandoning Jesus because you're trying to be justified by the law again. And Paul says, don't do that. You're falling from the grace of God and the true purpose of God's salvation. So understanding those things, the question for us becomes this, and it's what verse 18 answers. How can we then guard ourselves against falling from our steadfast pursuit and standing in the truth? How can we keep ourselves from being led away from error? Well, Paul says, verse 18, don't be led away, verse 18, but instead the idea is grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. So notice, spiritual growth, and let me tie this to what I said at the beginning, spiritual growth is preventative medicine spiritual growth is preventative medicine against spiritual error or deterioration i tell you this i don't know a growing christian who's a backsliding christian i know growing christians and i know backsliding christians but i don't know a growing christian who's a backsliding christian And the Bible, like it commands and instructs other things, please don't miss verse 18, this is a command of God to us, a command that we should be pursuing spiritual growth. And what's growth? Whether it's physical growth, whether it's business growth, growth is continual progress, making forward advancement. Spiritual life begins, Jesus said, with a spiritual birth. You're born again the day that you finally embrace Jesus Christ. It's a spiritual birth. You're brand new. You have a new spiritual life. And once you're born, God says, my desire, my purpose, it's normal and proper. And my request is that you then grow. That like a child born, you keep growing, making progress, advancements in maturity and development. God does not want us to stay static in our spiritual condition. He wants us to make continual spiritual advancements. And that does not matter whether you've been saved for one week, for one month, for one year, or maybe for some of you, for 20 years. Oh, I grew, I remember the glory, I used to grow so much and I read my Bible all the time and I, oh, I was growing and growing. Well, So what stunted your growth? Should we ever stop growing? Should we ever stop maturing? God's word is an ever-present word and his command is that we grow. Today, can you honestly say, be honest with yourself, can you honestly say today that you are seeking to grow in your spiritual life continuously? Here the scripture tells us two areas that we are commanded to grow in. First he says grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he also says that we should grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. First of all he says we should grow or increase in our understanding of the grace of Jesus Christ. Grace is that undeserved kindness, unearned blessing, unmerited favor. It's bestowed on an unworthy recipient by a gracious, generous, good, and a giving God. That's grace. Nothing we earn, nothing we can achieve or merit. It's that God is gracious and he, de- he delights to bestow his grace upon people because he's gracious, not because we deserve it, not because we've worked for anything. It's something, something that God does to show his favor and kindness out of his gracious nature. For that reason... If we were honest, we would probably all have to admit grace really then is something hard for our rational mind to accept and to grasp because we live in a works-based world. 
If you work, you get paid. If you don't work, you don't get paid. If you work, you get promoted. If you don't work, you won't get promoted. We live in a culture where it's work and receive wages. And, and so that's what we know. And then we try and carry that over to spiritual life. And God says, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are... And, and God says, look, I'm not a boss. I'm not your employer. I'm your God. I'm your father. I'm your savior. And because of that, it's very difficult for us many times, the fact that God wants to be kind to you, though you don't deserve it. God wants to bless you, though you never earn it or you can't achieve or merit it, that God wants to be gracious. That's why Peter said in 1 Peter 5, he is the God of all grace. He's a God of grace. You notice in our text here, even in verse 18, as he speaks of the grace of God, he speaks of the grace that comes from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace stems from Jesus. He's the manifestation, most clearly, of the grace of God to humanity that he came to an unworthy, sinful, fallen world and loved them and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And he went about doing good and blessing those who cursed him and spit on him and beat him and crucified him because he was gracious, because God's heart is gracious. In the New Testament, 10 times we read the phrase, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You know, the Lord wants us to grow in this area because we are saved by grace to start with, right? That's what Ephesians 2 tells us. We are saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works. That's how we experience salvation. We recognize I am an unworthy sinner who's offended God by my sinful thoughts, actions. I, I, I'm unworthy. I don't deserve heaven. I don't deserve, I'm an unworthy, undeserving sinner who deserves clearly one thing I know I deserve, punishment, hell, damnation. But yet there is a God who loves me, who said, you know what, but I'm going to make a way for you to be forgiven, to be free from that punishment, to be able to come dwell with me in eternity and to have your life reunited to me. And so we realize that we are saved by grace. It's through our faith and all we do is believe in what God's done. He says that's not of works. We don't earn it and achieve it. We don't jump through religious hoops. We don't weigh out our good and bad. God says, no, it's not of works. I'm glad for that because I would not want to stand around eternity talking to somebody next to me telling me how much they did to get in because I, somebody's glory story is always better than mine. I'd be bummed for all of heaven. I'm looking forward to being around eternity, around the throne of God with people saying, yeah, I'm a bum too. Are you surprised you got here too? Yeah, I'm, thank God for grace saved by grace through my faith in what Jesus has done for us Peter was a tremendous recipient of grace despite his many failings and shortcomings the Lord took Peter just as he was raw material rough around the edges but he said Peter you follow me and I'll make you become a fisher of men Peter I know what you are now but I know what I can make you become just come to me as you are I'll make you become what you need to be and then you look at Peter's life and how many times Jesus was doing what? Cleaning up Peter's mistakes. He'd say things he shouldn't say. He'd do things. And Jesus would always clean up his messes with the grace of God in his life. Jesus was gracious to Peter in his moments of failure when he sunk, when he was trying to walk on water. And then when he denied the Lord, Jesus didn't cast him away. He was gracious to him and restored him. He blessed Peter's ministry. That's why Peter is the one who calls God the God of all Grace, Because Peter realized, man, I have discovered his grace in so many different ways in my life. Sometimes when I was struggling, he was gracious and he gave me the grace I needed when I was struggling so bad that I couldn't figure where my next breath was coming from. 
And he gave me the grace to go on. Or he gave me the grace to handle something that I just couldn't handle on my own. And Peter realized how many times I failed and I denied the Lord and I acted foolishly and, and he was so gracious to me in my failure. And he forgave me. And he restored me. Or how many times Peter must have thought I was so weak and I felt so out of my league and, and didn't have the human capability to do what I knew God was calling me to do. But then his grace flooded in and he overcame my human limitations because he gave me grace. He gave me grace to do what I couldn't do on my own. And he empowered me to serve in ways that I never could. Jesus told Paul the apostle in his life in the midst of his struggle, he said, Paul, I can't do exactly what you're asking. I hear your prayer, but Paul, I promise you this, my grace... My grace, it will be sufficient for you. It'll be enough. My grace is enough. It will supply what you need in the midst of those things. Hebrews 13.9 says, It is good that the heart be established by grace. See, this is what the Lord wants us to grow. And he wants us to be growing. Could have put any two terms in here. But he says, I want you to be growing in grace. I want you to continue to develop in your understanding that your acceptance and position before God is all about grace. You didn't come to God and win Him over because of what you presented to Him. It wasn't your great resume. It wasn't the wonderful track record you had or what people told God about you. They okay, this guy's got a great reputation. No, it was all grace. We come to God undeservedly like every other sinner on this planet and there's nothing that we earn or achieve or add. And even after we're saved, listen... We have to be growing in grace and understanding, even after you're a Christian, to keep growing and understanding and learning more and more. I can't do anything to make myself more righteous before God. The righteousness is an act of His grace. He gave me the righteousness of Jesus to be right before Him. I can't make myself more lovable to God. There's nothing lovable, quite honestly, about you. I'm sorry to tell you that. Nor me either. You know why God loves you? Because God's loving because God's loving. And he loves us because he's loving. And for us to continue to grow in this understanding that we might realize amazing grace, how sweet this sounds, saved a wretch like me. Once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. And to continue to grow and to learn continually that the Lord is relating to me continually, even after I'm saved by grace, by his grace, that when you fail, when I stumble, when we still sin, that the Lord doesn't then put us on the naughty list and, and say, okay, well, once you build back up your scale of good deeds, then I'll start being good to you again. Then I'll start blessing you again. But in the meantime, that's it. I'm withholding my blessing because of that prior performance or that failure last week or that mistake you made last... So that's it. You're on the naughty list for a while. No, listen. God's grace means that He does not bless or withhold His blessing based off of performance. As I said earlier, He's not an employer. He's a gracious God. And when we begin to think, listen, that God's blessing our life because we perform so well, well, because of how much I read my Bible and how much I pray, no wonder God's blessing my life. Wait a minute, all of a sudden you deserve something now? You earn something now? And that's not to say that God doesn't bless obedience. God blesses obedience and we should serve him faithfully. But the same comes to pass when we fail and make a mistake. And if God wants to, he's not limited to our performance to bless and be gracious to us. I think many times the Lord is gracious to me in the midst of my worst hours so that I walk away going, wow, the Lord has been so gracious to me. 
So gracious to me. That's why Paul told Timothy, be strong in grace. Be strong in grace. So we're to keep growing in this area. He also says in verse 18 that we should also be growing in our knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To be deepening in our understanding of Jesus personally. And please hear me, that word knowledge there does not a term that refers to just intellectual understanding. It's an experiential word. It's not knowledge intellectually, it's knowing something experientially. It's not just acquiring more information and facts about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ or more Bible knowledge about who Jesus is. It's coming to know Jesus more intimately and personally through experience with him. It's coming to a place where, again, Peter's not saying, look, you've got to really grow in your Bible knowledge. Grow in your Bible knowledge. I think we should grow in our Bible knowledge. But Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures diligently. They were students of the word. You search the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life, but you fail to come to me. Listen, you can study the word of God like academia, but if you never come to the person behind the pages and you never meet and interact and experience Jesus through your time in the Word of God, you're missing the whole point. He's saying, I pray that you would grow in coming to know the person of Jesus more. Not just knowing about Him, but getting to know Him. Getting to know Jesus better. Getting to know Him deeper as your Savior. You say this morning, well, I'm saved. Well, listen, I'm saved too. I've been saved since July 12, 1992. But the more I walk with Jesus... I know Jesus as my Savior more now than I did the day I asked Him to save me. Because as I've gotten to know Him more, I realize how much He saved me from. And I continue to find myself to this day saying, Lord, I know You saved me from the penalty of my sin, but would You save me from myself? Save me, Lord. Save me from who I am and what I can be. Lord, you're my Savior. And to get to know Him more deeply as Savior, to get to know Him more deeply as the Lord of your life. Oh, I prayed that sinner's prayer. I, I prayed that when I was four. I prayed that prayer. I'm fine. I'm going to heaven. But do you know the Lordship of Jesus in your life? Are you growing in what it means to live for Jesus Christ, to follow Jesus Christ, to let him be the Lord over your life where you submit to him in every area. Great questions to be asking ourselves as the Bible shows us here that spiritual growth is God's will for our life. It is God's will that we be making progress, important to cooperate with what's necessary and whatever that means in spiritual discipline in our life, to put our time in in the spiritual gym, if you would, to keep growing. In the same way that physical health and fitness doesn't come automatically if you do nothing, spiritual growth will not happen automatically. There's a process of participation and cooperation where we nourish and invest in our relationship with Jesus just like you invest in relationships with other people if it's going to be a healthy and growing and progressing relationship. Well, you may ask, well, Okay, great. Well, how does that growth come spiritually? What can we do to grow? Well, the Bible answers even specifically in certain passages what contributes to growth in our lives. Let me leave you with three things before we close this morning. First of all, number one, feeding on God's word consistently. Feeding on God's word consistently. 1 Peter 2, chapter 2, verse 2, tells us to be nourished by the milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Do you want to grow? 
Feed on the Word of God. Be serious about feeding on the Word of God. Secondarily, we can grow by staying connected to fellowship with other believers routinely. Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 4 speak to those truths. You can read those chapters and they speak of how that causes growth spiritually in our lives as we stay connected to fellowship. We make consistent endeavors to be with God's people regularly and consistently. We put a priority on Bible study and gatherings and worship services to be with God's people in the fellowship of the saints. And thirdly, also by remaining intimate with Jesus personally. Colossians 2.19 speaks of this. John 15, Jesus talks about abiding in him, that we would be fruitful, that we would have growth spiritually in our lives. And I tell you this, feeding on God's word, staying connected to fellowship, remaining intimate with the person of Jesus, not a religious lifestyle. If you do those things, you will grow as a Christian. And to the extent that I neglect or you already have or I do neglect those things, it will stunt our growth spiritually. I think the whole premise of this growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is purposeful because it puts our heart in a place of gratitude where it should be. Look at the last statement of verse 18, if you would. Peter says to him, to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be the glory both now and forever. See, when, when, when we're growing in the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we're growing and getting to know our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ more deeply and intimately. Do you know what's going to happen as a direct result? Our heart will be filled with gratitude and it will put our heart in the right place where we say to Him, be the glory. Don't be impressed with me. Don't be attracted by me. I'm not looking for attention. Something about that breeds a deep humility into the heart of a person when they understand the grace of God, that they're not looking for the applause or the attention, or, but they, they, to Him be the glory. Something happens when somebody's getting to know Jesus more deeply as their Lord and their Savior, whereby your heart overflows with a gratitude, oh Lord, to you be the glory. And hey, you want a greater draw? I mean, I just, you know, I come in, I come into worship service, I don't even really, I have to be honest, I don't really have much of a desire to worship. I just, well, where's the desire in my heart to, I know I'm a Christian, but I don't have a desire to worship anymore. Well, maybe it's because you're stunted in your spiritual growth. Maybe as you grow in the grace of God and you grow in getting to know Jesus better, you'll find that something will stir in your heart where you say, man, I want to give him glory. I want to praise him and give him glory because of his grace and because I know him and what he's doing in my life.